Grace, mercy, and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers, my sisters in Christ. The rock wall is a staple of southwestern architecture. I'm sure it was invented that it started out as a cheap way to fortify the boundaries of your property using what's available, a bunch of rocks. But now, you want to put a rock wall in on your property, it can run you thousands of dollars. I had the privilege, the opportunity, of being able to watch this happen play by play as an individual put up a rock wall in my neighborhood. He hired a guy, one guy, who did the whole wall himself, nine feet tall, and at least 40 feet long. And day by day, since he was working by himself, it was pretty easy to to see the stage he was at coming and going from the property. The first day, what he did was he laid out the rocks, right? And he looked at them, and he ordered them in just the right way. And even though to me it just looked like some guy was staring at a bunch of rocks that he dumped on the ground, what was going on in his head? a precise calculation of where these rocks must go because this was not his first rock wall rodeo, we could say. The way Peter talks to us in our second lesson for today, he's talking to us about how God has something he wants, (coughs) excuse me, wants to build And even more wisdom is involved with what God wants to build than a smart guy who's built a thousand rock walls in his life building another one. God is very precise. He has a very unique purpose for what he is constructing. Peter says God is building a house. A house. Now, if you are someone who's had the opportunity to be able to build your own house, plan it out, of course... You make decisions on what, you're, what kind of house you're going to build based on what it is going to be used for, based on who is going to live there. And so you make decisions on how you get into the house. Are there going to be steps? Do you need a wheelchair ramp? How many stories is your house going to be? Are you going to be able to go up and down those steps all day long? If you're a busy working family and you're building this house, you might need a two-car garage. You might need plenty of rooms if you're a big family. You might need a big entertainment space because that's what you guys like to do. Or if it's not a priority on your list, maybe you don't need a big entertainment space. These decisions need to be made based on what the house is for. Now, what is God building this house, Peter says, for? Himself. God is going to live here. So what kind of house does that look like? We have a picture. We have a couple pictures from our Bible. There's the tabernacle of the Old Testament, right? That tent that the Old Testament Israelites would throw up as they were wandering through the wilderness whenever they settled for camp. That would be their house of worship, and that was where God dwelt. That's where they brought their sacrifices. That's where the priests gave prayers on their behalf, and then they would pack it back up when it was time to move, and it would go on. When the Israelites settled into the land of Canaan and that was their their land, they could build something more permanent. 
It wasn't until the time of King Solomon that they built this beautiful temple that was glorious and grand so that people came from all different other nations and they saw Solomon's temple and they concluded, God must really dwell among you. But the tabernacle is gone. Solomon's temple has been destroyed for thousands and thousands of years. So God, it's time for something new. It's time for something a little different. God is building a new temple, and he's not using brick and mortar. He's not using rocks and concrete. He wants to use you. He wants to make this a living, breathing, moving, active temple. Now, there's a bit of a problem. God wants to do with this new living temple the exact same thing he was doing with his tabernacle and with Solomon's temple. He wants to make his presence known. He wants worship to happen in this temple. But there's a problem. Because just like with the tabernacle and just like Solomon's temple, people couldn't just wander in and worship God however they wanted. No, that's what the first five books of the Bible are all about. What must you do to worship God appropriately? You can't just wander in and defile his temple with impurity. And that's the problem. Because we are defiled. We are impure. If God is going to use us, he's going to come up to a problem. It's like being invited to a black tie event. But you've been homeless for the past 20 years. You haven't had a decent meal. You, haven't ha you don't even have a decent set of clothes to go to it in. It's like as soon as you get back from two months in the field, out in the desert, you get invited to go present to your superiors about what you did, but they don't even give you a chance to take a shower yet. It's a little inappropriate. We are not set for the task of being God's temple. Now here's the difference between the way God chooses his people and the way people choose people. If you're choosing your team from a lineup for kickball at recess, who do you pick? Or the NBA draft, who are they going after? The people with the most innate talent or innate ability, right? So that they can do something for you. It's like God, though, is the one choosing the kickball team and he picks the absolute worst kids, the kids who don't even want to play, the kids who aren't even paying attention. God picks people like you and me, not based on our ability to worship him. Because by nature, we can't. We're too impure. We're too unrighteous. But God is fine with that because he fixes that problem himself. It's like he's picking the worst kid at kickball and transforming them before the game starts into the best athlete anyone has ever seen. God picks dirty, impure rocks like you and me, and he purifies us. He makes us capable of worshiping him. How? Well, the way that you did that in the Old Testament, the way that you worshiped God, the way that you purified yourself when you came into his tabernacle or temple, you brought sacrifices. You offered what, what little you had. You offered bulls or goats or herbs or whatever you grew, whatever you had, you gave it to God to purify yourself. But now a greater sacrifice has been made. Sacrifice that you didn't bring, but God made on your behalf. Jesus Christ. 
the perfect holy son of God shed his blood on a cross to purify you, to wash you up, to clean you up, to forgive you of all of your sin, to take away your impurity, to take away your defilement, to make you into this living stone. So now God is ready to put you in his temple, to build what he's trying to build. Now he, he picks you, purifies you, and he builds his house. That's what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, <clears throat> you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. As I drove by that rock wall builder, mentioned that you could see that he was using this very precise, very intense set of criteria that he was judging these rocks by. Based on the rock wall builder's goals, he was judging those rocks based on if they would stand. How does God judge who he picks to be in his temple? It's definitely not the way the world judges people, right? I mean, look at us. We are a church right now, this, at this very moment, full of so many different kinds of people. People from so many different backgrounds, of different ages. We are a ragtag group. They make movies like this sometimes, where there's a, a ragtag group of people who are unlikely heroes, and then they turn out to be the best at the end. If you were a person trying to assemble your own church, you probably wouldn't pick us, would you? God does. Because he's not thinking about the things that the world thinks about. He doesn't pick just the attractive people, or just people from one ethnicity, or just the people who are financially well-off, or just the people who are influential, or just the people with a certain set of skills. No, he picks sinners and purifies them. He picks you and he picks me. What transcends what is so much more important than everything that is different about this group and this church right now is who our cornerstone is. All that other stuff that makes us different, differences of taste, of opinion, or difference of politics even, are transcended by the fact that we are all built on Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. And you know what a cornerstone is, even if you've never heard the word before. Anyone who play, has played Jenga before gets the purpose of a cornerstone. Because in Jenga, the way that I played Jenga, or I was taught to play Jenga, is once you put your hand on the piece, you cannot take it off, right? And so you know instantly, once you put your hand on that Jenga piece, whether it's one you can take off. And if it's loose, you just go ahead and you're fine. But if, it, if you feel... That pressure, right? That weight on that piece, you're like, oh no, I'm about to lose. Because as soon as you take that piece that has all the weight of that tower on it off, it's all going to come crashing down. That's Jesus. He is the essential component to who we are. He is the essential component to what we do. Take Jesus out, it all comes crashing down. 
try to replace Jesus with anything, even if it sounds really good, even if it's something precious to us like family or fellowship or having fun with each other or Christian values. Take anything, even as good as it sounds, if it replaces Jesus as our cornerstone, we crash down. And crashing down can be invisible. We could keep meeting like this Sunday after Sunday. We could keep calling ourselves believers, but still cease to be the living temple if we have replaced Jesus as our cornerstone. Because if we replace Jesus, if we substitute anything in Jesus' place, we're no longer capable of giving God the praise he deserves. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father. So we dare not replace him with anything else. Not everybody is going to understand that. And that's what Peter goes to next. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. If you're someone who knows absolutely nothing about constructing a rock wall, on that first day that that guy's working on it, when he has all the rocks on the ground, you might think that's just some weird guy staring at a bunch of rocks. If somebody doesn't understand the way God works, the way God thinks, the way God saves people, the way God is a God of grace, if someone is determined to misunderstand that, then what we're doing here won't make a lot of sense to them. Peter invites us to think about how people responded to Jesus when he was walking this earth before his death. What did they do? A lot of people didn't like him. Why not? Because they didn't understand what God was all about. They didn't understand that God is a God of grace. They thought the Messiah would be someone who would come in with violence and kick out the Romans. They thought that the Messiah would be someone impressive, that we would all just look at him and see how muscular or handsome he is. And of course, that's the Messiah. And so they completely misunderstood what it was all about. So will you be really surprised if you're living your life with Christ as your cornerstone seven days a week and there are people who don't get it? who don't get why you make the decisions you make, why you do what you do as a Christian, is that really a shock? Peter says, not really. But then he throws this real head-scratcher at us, doesn't he? He says that those people who misunderstand, who disobey the message, that's what they were destined for. Uh-oh. Does that mean that God chooses people to disobey? Does that mean that God predetermines who's going to believe and who's not going to believe? No, it doesn't mean that. And for that, we would go to other places in Scripture. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, Scripture says. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their evil ways and live, God says. He doesn't do something that goes directly against what he wants to happen. He doesn't choose people to send them to hell. God does not cause sin, nor does he cause anyone to sin. But here's what Peter's saying. If someone reacts to Christ by turning the other way 
And instead of walking the way that goes to God the Father, Jesus, the only way, chooses to walk their own way and disobey the message, they are putting themselves on a track that ends very poorly for them. If someone, instead of coming to the cornerstone of our lives, Jesus Christ, and believing in him, trips over over him and tries to go the other way, they will fall and their fall will end in incomprehensible pain. Brothers and sisters, have compassion on these people. Live God's praises in your life. So this happens to as few people as possible, but it is going to happen to some people, Peter's saying. You know, so often we talk about how the church needs to catch up. Christianity needs to catch up to what people are talking about out there. We need to be able to handle the hot topics that people are talking about out there. But from Peter's perspective, it's the world that needs to catch up. That you, Christian, are ahead of the game. Because you understand something super crucial. You understand that Christ is your life. That he is supreme. That he is king of the universe. The world needs to catch up to those facts, regardless of what's hot to talk about right now. So share what you know. Be a priest. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's it take to become a pastor in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod? What did I do? I had to go to a four-year college followed by a four-year seminary. And now I'm here. What does it take to become a priest in God's kingdom? A minister of God's temple, his new temple, his living temple. I'm not talking about a priest that you see at a Catholic church, someone wearing something quite like this, doing prayers up here. I'm talking about an Old Testament priest, slaughtering bulls and goats, making sacrifices, giving prayers, worshiping. What does it take to become a priest? What does it take to find belonging? What does it take to become a part of God's temple? Nothing. There's nothing you have to do. No paper you have to sign, no school you have to go to, no seminary you have to graduate from. God has already made it happen. You are a priest in God's temple. Because at your baptism, God placed his hand on you and said, this one is mine. I handpick this one for my purposes. And then through the forgiveness and love and grace of Jesus Christ, he drew you to himself. When you were in darkness, he drew you into his light. When you had no belonging or no love or no companionship, God drew you into belonging with him through Jesus and set you apart as holy. You are now all priests in God's living, breathing, moving temple. You are the temple. You are kings and queens in God's kingdom. You are citizens, you are members of God's family, all through the grace of Jesus Christ. So I'm just like you. I'm a priest just as you are. 
in God's temple. It's just that God has placed me here to be your pastor, to help you, to bring you to Christ, to give you word and sacrament. But how has God placed you? What unique and special position has God put you into where you can serve in the way that only you can? What unique and special position in your life has God placed you into so that you can declare his praises the way that you talk and act and think? God has hand-picked you for his purposes, brothers and sisters. So it's as simple as you just being who you are in Christ, wherever you are, and living that purpose that God has given you. Amen.